Lord God Almighty, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Bible, your written word. We are going to open up your word. We pray that you may make the dumb to speak, that he may speak the truth of God and nothing but your truth, so that the deaf may hear, the blind may see, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things out of your word. Oh, that you may give the dead life, that you may stir up dead souls to respond to you, so that our feeble knees may be strengthened, that the lame may walk, that we may walk in obedience to you. Grant, O God, that we may see the glory of our God, the excellency of our Lord. We pray that you may cause righteousness and praise to spring forth even here, even in Maruga Presbyterian Church, even in this congregation, through the hearing of the preaching of your word. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Now let us turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Uh, last week, uh, some of the children drew a very, very pleasing picture about John. Uh, he's suffering. This morning, the children got an option. You can either draw John the Baptist very sad, depressed, locked up in prison, and two of his disciples came to see him. Or you can draw a picture of the dumb speaking, the blind seeing, and the lame walk, and people jumping up and down praising God. Well, see which one you want to draw. But we go back to Matthew chapter 11. And uh, this morning, we shall really look at verses 1 to 15. But let me read to you verse 2 to verse 6. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The lame, the blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Now, friends, we have been uh, spending some time in looking at the life and ministry of John the Baptist, who is the forerunner to the Messiah. In Malachi chapters 3 and 4 and Isaiah 40, uh, we got 
something like three to four prophecies about the coming of the forerunner to the Messiah. And this morning we are going to bring our series of studies on the Baptist to a close. Now you may recall John the Baptist was not only the forerunner to the Messiah, he was also a most selfless and self-effacing man. There was hardly any man as selfless as the Baptist. He was not seeking anything for himself, his name, honor, riches, or power. And the secret of his selflessness is because he was the most Christ-centered man. From infancy to the age of 30, the Baptist was thinking all the time about the coming of the Messiah. He was a man who lived for the Messiah. And he could point out to people, to Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Follow Jesus, not me. He is going to take away your sin. We also notice John the Baptist was a man of tremendous courage. He was not a man pleaser, not a people pleaser. He dared to rebuild the sin of all and sundry, great or small. His listeners he dared to offend. People coming up for his baptism, he could tell them to their face, Brood of vipers, make sure that you bear fruit of repentance and don't rely on your good religious background. And last time we do, we did mention that John the Baptist even dared to preach against the immoral lifestyle of King Herod. King Herod summoned John to preach before him, not just once, but repeatedly. Uh, John was given such a great privilege. But it did not flatter Herod. He told him to his face, it's not right for you to have your brother's wife. Yes, you may have gone through the divorce, you may be legally married to your sister-in-law, but that is wrong. That is theft. That is adultery. That is incest. And that is wrong. And Herod's so-called wife, Herodias, Herod grudge against him, and John was put in prison. Eventually, Herod was tricked by his so-called wife, mistress, girlfriend, whatever you call her. And then John was beheaded. But this morning we backtrack to when John was in prison. And he struggled in prison. John preached 
and denounced King Herod's sin. He was put in prison for that. And we are told, uh, most likely, he was put in the prison of Herod's palace, somewhere near the Dead Sea uh, underground dungeon, the only uh, source of light and air is just on the ceiling, some opening. And it was terrible. And John was languishing in prison. It was not only unpleasant, but no doubt he became weak, then locked up like that, maybe sickly, and he got really down and depressed. I put it down like this, he was locked up and cast down. He was a, a brave man, a man of the wilderness. He used to be roaming free in the dust. He was eating locusts and wild honey. He lived a free life. He was a mighty preacher, a man of the desert. But now he became a prisoner in a hole, confined, could exercise, could, could walk about, could preach, and by and by he got really depressed. And then he thought to himself, what's going on here? I am the forerunner to the Messiah. Jesus is the Lamb of God, the Savior, the Deliverer, the Judge, the King, the Lord of Glory. And I'm languishing in prison and the Messiah is doing nothing to save me. He's letting me to be languishing like this, to be suffering like this. Where is the deliverance? Where is the salvation? What is Messiah doing? So John started to think, to doubt, and he said, Is Jesus the Messiah after all? Have I been mistaken about his identity? Could I be wrong? Was it going to be another person who is to be the Messiah? My dear friend, you see, John was in very serious trouble. He was in the depth of the waters. The darkness of the soul, not just darkness of the cell, the prison cell. He was assaulted by doubt and unbelief. Now this, let me say this, truthfully, can be the experience of not a few Christians. Some Christians, some true believer can go through this. Now I come across this saying, if you can take it, take it. If you can't take it, I will explain anyway. It says, doubting faith is not doubtful faith. 
You get it? Doubting faith is not doubtful faith. What does it mean? It means a true believer, a truly converted person, may be assaulted by doubt of every kind. He may be shaken by fears and worries and anxieties and unbelief. His soul may be in trouble, but he can still be a true believer. You this morning may be doubting, oh, I'm not sure whether I'm a true believer, whether I have saving faith. Now you may not have the faith of assurance or certainty, but you can have the faith of reliance. You may not be very sure of your standing before God, but you can be relying upon Jesus all the time. Now let me ask you, and you answer before the Lord, not me, this morning. Are you relying on Jesus to save you? This morning, your greatest hope and trust, is it in Jesus? Are you casting your soul upon Christ? Are you saying something like this? Well, there are many things I do not know. There are many things I'm struggling with, but I do believe in Jesus. I do cast my soul upon Him. In life and in death, in everything, is it true of you? If so, you have the faith of reliance. So let us come back to John. He was in such a deep spiritual depression. Not only his body was locked up, but his soul seemed to be locked up as well. What did he do? What did he do? You notice, he took the matter directly to Jesus. Even though he was in prison, he was still allowed to have visitors, and his disciples faithfully came to him, and John did not talk about his doubt with his disciples, but rather he said to his two disciples, now you go to Jesus, you ask him this question. Shrek ahead. You go, ask him, Jesus, are you the coming one? Or do we look for an eye? You see what John is doing here? He was struggling, he was in doubt, he was in trouble, but he took the matter directly to Jesus. He didn't allow himself to be brooding in that terrible situation. He didn't have a long discussion with his disciples. He didn't grumble and murmur. He took the matter directly to Jesus. He couldn't go to Jesus himself. He did what is the next best. He sent two of his disciples to Jesus and asked Jesus his deepest question and told Jesus his greatest problem. What a lesson here this is to us. 
John took the matter directly to Jesus. He did not let his doubts and fears linger on, and he put Jesus openly, clearly, his deepest problem. Are you the Messiah? This is my trouble. This is my fear. Are you the Messiah? Now I say, what a lesson it is to us. That we should take our trouble, first of all, to Jesus. But my dear friend, let me ask you, what do you do first when you are in trouble? When you are in sorrow? When your soul is disturbed and troubled, what do you do first and foremost? Text your friends so that your friend can come to have a cup of coffee with you? Is that the first thing you do? Tell your wife and cry over her your sorrows? Shame on you man if you do that first. Why do we go the roundabout ways and not go straight direct to God? If you are in an urgent business, you need to go, let's say, to Hong Kong. You are in an urgent business to do something. Would you buy a roundabout ticket with three stops overs. If you've got time, you can do that. But if you've got no time, if you're in an urgent business, what do you do? You don't buy an air ticket that will stop over in Vietnam and in Bangkok and in Singapore and then go to Hong Kong. You buy a direct flight. And we learn from John here. Whatever trouble we may have, especially our deepest trouble, we take it to the Lord in prayer first. Friends, let me ask you, who is your best friend? Who is your best friend? Is Jesus your best friend? The scripture says, the Messiah is the wonderful counselor. He's the wonderful counselor. But so often we go to pitiful counselors. Instead of spending hours in prayer, we spend hours and we brood over our sorrows to our friends and uh, try to get sympathy and get advice. Oh friends, you know human counselors? are but pitiful counselors? What is minister? What is a pastor? What is a psychologist? What is a therapist? Someone says a therapist is a paid friend. It's true, isn't it? We're expensive. We have to pay. And these human counselors, they may be able to help us a little. But Christ our Lord is that wonderful counselor. 
And let us think through this. Let me put it this to you. How many hours we spend talking with our friends about trouble? And how many minutes do we pray? What's the proportion? My dear friends, let us learn. Whatever trouble we may have, to take it first to the Lord in prayer. You want hours to talk about things? Go before the Lord, spend the hours before the Lord, and pour out your fears, your concerns, your troubles, your sorrows. Okay, so John took the matter to Christ the Lord. And how did Jesus reply? It's very interesting, isn't it? The two disciples of John came to Jesus, and Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. This is the answer. This is the counsel that the Lord Jesus gave to John the Baptist. You disciples, you go to tell John what you have heard and seen. See, you have heard my preaching, you have seen my miracles, tell John. Yes, the blind people are seeing. Jesus make the blind see. He make the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf people are hearing. Even the dead are raised. And Jesus, the Messiah, is preaching to the poor. Yes, John, we have heard the preaching of Jesus. We have, yes, it's true, you know. The, the, the crippled people, they are walking now. The blind, we've seen them. They are now seeing. The deaf, they are hearing. Oh, oh, John, let me tell you, even the dead, Awaits. Jesus said to them, Bring this report to John, and that will help. You see, how, how come this will help John? You see, John knows his Bible back to front. Do you think it is possible that John has not memorized the entire prophecy of Isaiah in heart? I think it's quite unlikely that John would not have memorized chunks of Isaiah. And in Isaiah 35, what do we hear? Isaiah 35 verses 5 to 6. 700 years before the Baptist and Jesus, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. This is what Messiah will do. John, remember your lessons in Isaiah? Remember Isaiah 35? 
And Jesus is doing this. In other words, Jesus is telling John, go back to the Bible. Consider the whole truth of God about the Messiah. Now, let me summarize to you what the Old Testament says about the Messiah. There are many, many passages, many, many prophecies. But basically, it comes down to this. When Messiah shall come in the future, he will bring salvation and judgment. And furthermore, Messiah shall suffer, but he shall also be a mighty conqueror. 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 It's both. But, but how can it be if Messiah comes and brings message of comfort? How then can the judgment be? If Messiah comes as a mighty conqueror, how come he would be a sufferer? How do these two matters fit together? How could it be that there shall be messianic comfort and messianic judgment? How can it be that there shall be gentleness of the Messiah and wrath of the Messiah? How can the Messiah be both a lamb and a lion? Yes, the Old Testament talks about the Messiah to be a lion. But the Old Testament also talks about Jesus as the Lamb of God. How can it be true? When you go to the zoo and you see a lion and then this tour guide zookeeper to say to you, look at the lamb. You say, what are you talking about? This is a lion. And then the zookeeper said, no, this is a lamb. And he says, it's, it's a lion. And then you ask your friend, is this a lion or a lamb? And then all your friends say, it's a lamb. But you see, it's a lion. And then you go on for half an hour and so, uh, what are you going to say? You say, well, am I crazy? Have I got eyesight to see? Is it a lamb? Is it a lion? Now, my dear friend, you see, Jesus is the master key to the whole Bible. Jesus is both the lion and the lamb. And it is the genius of Jesus to solve this great Old Testament problem. By understanding, there are two comings of his. In his first coming, is the coming to suffer and to die for sinners. In his second coming, is the coming of judgment. But he must come first as the sufferer, the redeemer of sinner, before he can come as the savior and the deliverer and the king and the judge of the whole world. Does it make sense? Maybe I've muddled up my language. He came first as the Redeemer. 
and then he came, he shall come as the judge. So basically what Jesus is saying to John is this, be patient. I'm the Messiah. I'm doing messianic things. Trust me. I will save Now, if you are quick, you've got a Bible open to Isaiah 35. See the whole connection, the context. Because the text that the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Before that, it's verses 3 to 4. And John would know this well. Strengthen the weak hands, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the weapon pants of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and so on. John knows the whole passage. And Jesus said to him, just as I have opened the eyes of the blind, and so on, so I will also come and save you. Last week, one of our children drew the picture, uh, well, we're moving, uh, in a little corner, it was the head of John the Baptist on the plate. All right? Uh, but, there's also part of the picture is that when John the Baptist was cut off, the angel took John to glory to heaven. You know, Jesus' message to John is that he's the Messiah. He will come and save you. When? The moment his head was chopped off, the same moment is ushered into glory. And that to John is salvation. Horrible to the sight of his disciples when they went to collect the body of John without a head. The glory is to John. To know that King Messiah has indeed saved him. So we learn here that the Lord Jesus comforted John the Baptist by Holy Scriptures. Jesus took John back to the Bible. And my dear friend, I want to say this to you. The Lord Jesus is still comforting us by Holy Scriptures. Do not expect Jesus would speak to you audibly out of heaven. This is not his ordinary way. The ordinary way that Jesus would comfort us now, as he comforted John, is that he would bring the Holy Scripture in our mind that we should remember Holy Scriptures and the Bible and Bible verses will come to us in our heart with power. 
It's one thing to read the Bible. It's one thing to memorize Bible verses. But when the Lord Jesus comforts us, He will bring the Bible verses into our hearts and the Bible verses will become powerful and mighty in our hearts and we shall be comforted. Do you know this, my dear friend? Do you know the comfort of Holy Scriptures? I can bear witness to you. Almost every day, and I cannot think of many days, that the Lord has not comforted me by Holy Scriptures. There's rarely a day that the Lord has not come to me and comfort me with Holy Scriptures. I may be a bit weary and down and depressed. I may be saying to myself, brooding to myself, oh, the people are not responding. Things like that. But then the Lord will time and again come and comfort me with His Holy Scriptures. I do try, albeit feebly, to sing deep down in the Holy Scriptures. If the Lord should comfort us with Holy Scripture, it's also our duty to soak ourselves up in Holy Scriptures. But you may like to ask me, how can I soak myself up in Holy Scriptures? I read my Bible, but I don't think most of the time it's so comforting. Let me tell you just one thing, just one thing. And I've told you this times and times again, but some of you may not be doing this. Can you not do the simplest thing? You don't need to read books. You don't need to study the languages. You come here to church. You got the newsletter, at least you try to hear the sermon. Why can't you go home and revise the sermon and go through the Bible readings again as soon as possible and then do it again sometime afterward? It's something very simple, isn't it? Are you doing that? Are you revising the sermon that you have heard? The sermon you heard in church here, they are not fantastic. They are just homemade meal. They are just soup prepared and boiled over at least for a whole week. I can say to you friends, the sermon you hear in church, they have been prepared at least for a whole week. They are not. Not something fanciful, not something fantastic, but home-made meal. Slow cooker. Take it home. Revise the passage. Pray over it. Read over the Bible readings. One year, 50 passages. If you come to one service. Two, a hundred. You go to Bible study, 150. 10 years, a thousand texts. 
And when you come to a time of need, Christ the Lord, the Holy Spirit, will bring to your mind those Bible verses and they will come with power anointed by the Spirit to comfort you. One more thing. As the disciples of John were living, Jesus began to command John, to command him very highly. Look at verse 7. As they departed, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A wheat shaken by the wind? And what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? He's saying about John. You people, what do you go out to the wilderness to see? Hmm? Is John a wheat shaken by the wind? Is John a weak willed person? Like a... a, 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 a grass shaken by the wind. You know some people are like that. They follow every wind of teaching. They follow the fashion. If people say that is cool, they say, oh, I must be cool. If people say, well, uh, this is the fashion, they will follow. If people teach that, they will say, oh, maybe that is right. They have no conviction. They can be shaken easily. Some people are like that. And some people are very self-pampering. They like to dress in soft garment. Oh, I must pamper self. Uh, uh, I must be very careful about my look, my appearance, my feeling. Very soft sort of person. Uh, is John someone like that? No, Jesus said. John had backbone. He was a man of conviction. He was a strong man, he was a manly man. He was a man faithful to God. What do you go into the desert to see? A prophet. And then Jesus says, He is the forerunner to the Messiah. Quoting from the Old Testament, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before me, or before you. Now verse 11. Look at that. Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist. What a commendation. When John was fearful, when he doubted Jesus' identity, Jesus did not mock him and belittle him. Jesus did not say to him, well, what are you thinking about? What a disgrace to my name that you should doubt me. No, Jesus did not recommend John. He comforted him. This is what our Lord Jesus is like. So tender. And then Jesus commanded John so highly. John the Baptist is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Put Moses. Daniel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, and you name it. John is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Furthermore, 
the commendation went even higher. Among those born of women, there has not been risen one quicker than John the Baptist. Our Lord Jesus said, John the Baptist is the greatest human being up to that time. What a commendation. How come John was so great? Because he stood nearest to the Messiah. He was next to the Messiah. He was the forerunner to Jesus. That lies the greatness of John the Baptist. But then you go on in verse 11. Listen to what Jesus says. But he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Have you heard that? John the Baptist is the greatest human being. But the least person in my kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven, is greater than John. This morning, my dear friends, if you are a true believer in Jesus, your status, your privilege is greater than John the Baptist. You've got the logic. If John is the greatest human being, and you, the smallest, the most insignificant believer in Jesus, you are greater than John, that means you are greater than the rest of humanity who do not believe in Christ. Do you believe that? You say, how is it possible? You say, I'm only a very small, insignificant believer. Yes, I do believe in Jesus. But I go to Jesus in all my sins and failures and needs. I'm still assaulted by doubts and fears and unbelief and worries and anxieties. How can I be greater even to John? How can that be true? I'm so unworthy. But my dear friends, in terms of your status, your privilege, you are greater than John. John was the forerunner to the Messiah. But you, the smallest believer in Jesus, you have the Messiah living within you by spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3.16 and other passages, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? My believing friends, do you not know you are the very temple of God? Do you not know that the Holy Spirit lives in you? If you are a true believer in Christ, the Holy Spirit is living in you. What a status. What a privilege. I remember what an older minister said to me years ago. He said, one of the highlights in his ministry, he was a minister in Canberra, was 
to have the U.S. ambassador coming to my home and I serve him dinner or lunch. I got the U.S. ambassador coming to my home. Is that not a privilege? If you got a U.S. ambassador coming to your home for a meal, would you not have taken a photo and put it as a prominent piece of furniture in your home? Someone told me she worked in an accounting firm and her boss had a meeting with the president of China some years ago. And her boss put a photo in his office. My dear friends, do you not know the Holy Spirit is living in you? If it's a mere talk, do you know this? Now before I finish, I would just like to ask you a few questions. If the Holy Spirit is living in you, does the Holy Spirit live in you happily? Is your heart clean, orderly, and warmly for dwelling? Or will the Holy Spirit says, well, I feel well uncomfortable to live in this person's heart. He's giving me only a small room. I only got a bed. And the heart of this person is so disorderly, so dirty and filthy. I feel very uncomfortable. It's a smelly, dirty house. I don't want to dwell there. But the Lord Jesus asked me to dwell in him. Is that the condition of the Holy Spirit in your heart? Are you giving him the best room in your heart? The throne in your heart? Is your life orderly? Is your heart clean? Has the Holy Spirit got space in your, in your dwelling within you? Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we cry to you for your mercy, your grace to help. That you may first of all give us love for your word, a desire for holiness, and that we may make ourselves ready to receive you, to entertain you in our hearts. That our hearts may be clean orderly, spacious, for the Holy Spirit to live in. In Jesus' name, Amen.